welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on July 25th, Lord's Day Service. The words to which I'd like to direct your attention are found in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, I'll begin in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, in Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And skip to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would visit us this morning and give us grace to see Jesus. Give us grace to trust him and give us grace to follow him where he leads. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since the time of Christ, Christians of every generation have had to answer the question, how shall we live? And the church's answer to that question, generation after generation, in war and in peace, in good times and in bad times, in small things and in great things, are the essential threads of church history. There is an infinite variety of situations the church has found itself living in during the past 2,000 years. Our present moment is no different. We, just like every generation of Christians before us, we are in a particular moment in the history of the church. And the question for you is, how will you live? Given this particular moment that the Lord has seen fit to put you, how will you live? Will you live like the demons who in verses 7 
through 12 recognize Jesus' true identity, but don't submit? Or will you live like Jesus' family, who in verses 20 and 21 and verses 31 through 35 treat Jesus with incredulity? Or will you live like the 12 disciples, who in verses 13 through 19 receive the call to Jesus and follow Him? So how will you live? First, will you live like the demons who recognize Jesus' true identity but don't submit? Look with me at verse 11. It says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, let's pause for a moment, unclean spirits is referring here to demons. Whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So here we have the demons, the avowed enemies of Jesus Christ, publicly and rightly identifying that Jesus is the Son of God. The setting of the demons' public and right statement is that Jesus is retreating from the threat of the Pharisees. As Jesus retreats to the sea, the people are flocking to Him. Jesus' popularity is emphasized When it says in verse 8 that the people come to Jesus from the far-flung regions of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, Tyre and Sidon. And so it's in the context of the sick and downcast throwing themselves upon Jesus that the demons cry out publicly and rightly, You are the Son of God. So what are we to make of this? What are we to make it? We have the demons, the avowed enemies of the Son of God, rightly and publicly identifying Him. Here we have the demons instinctively paying homage to their superior authority. They confess the ultimate truth about Jesus. They confess that He is the Son of God. What are we to make of this? Especially in light of the fact that God the Father spoke these exact same words over Jesus at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. And also, God the Father will speak these same words over Jesus at the Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. And yet here we find the demon saying the same thing about Jesus that God the Father says about Jesus. What are we to make of this? I mean, on the surface level, it reveals that the demons know who he is. The demons are well aware of the status of Jesus. They identify Him publicly as the Son of God. And so what is the difference between the Father saying these words over Jesus and the demons saying these words of Jesus? Well, the difference is that the voice of the Father hits the perfect note. And the voice of the demons is off-key. In other words, yes, it is true that the demons say something that is true and they say it publicly. It is true that the demons utter an orthodox confession of Jesus, but they are not well pleased with His presence. You see, when God the Father publicly and rightly identifies Jesus as the Son of God at His baptism, we are then told that the Father said to Jesus, With you I am well pleased. When the demons rightly identify Jesus publicly for all to hear that He is the Son of God, that is something with which they are not well pleased. And so we have the demons who are the avowed enemy of Jesus 
rightly and publicly identifying that this man is the Son of God. This is a unique kind of rejection of Jesus. And we can learn something about this. We can learn a lot about faith. We can learn a lot about belief by studying unbelief. And here we have the demons rejecting Jesus. So what the demons who reject Jesus rightly identifying him. So what is the anatomy of the demons' unbelief? What is the anatomy of their rejection of Jesus? Notice that the demons' unbelief exists in practice, not in theory. They do not deny that God exists. They do not deny that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And so there's a cognitive dissonance to the demons' rejection of Jesus. Cognitive dissonance just means they hold contradictory beliefs. They hold contradictory ideas and values. It means they participate in an action that goes against one of their stated beliefs. Their conscious reasoning of the facts concludes that this man is the Son of God, and yet they reject him and make him their enemy. How can this be? Well, this teaches us a lot about how unbelief works. And largely for human beings, unbelief is primarily an emotional reaction. It's something intuitive. It's something instinctive. As much as it pains me to admit it, we tend to overestimate the power of ideas. Very rarely do people change their beliefs as a result of a chain of conscious reasoning. Very rarely do people change their beliefs because they were presented with the right collection of syllogisms. That's not what unbelief's about. People don't reject Jesus because of arguments. It's that people reject Jesus out of this visceral negative reaction towards him. And then they go searching for the arguments. And so the arguments matter. But they're secondary. They're following the emotional rejection of Jesus. Pascal explains this phenomenon with his famous line, the heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. Life's great choices, beliefs, your values, your identities, your purposes, those things often come intuitively. And what I mean is, they come not from articulate argumentation and careful study. They come from the desires of your soul. Of course, I'm not here saying that the demons have souls, that's not the point, but we do see that they know who Jesus is and yet still make him their enemy, and that type of unbelief has something to teach us. And so, will you live like the demons who recognize Jesus' true identity, but don't submit? Notice what demonic unbelief is. Demonic unbelief is not hard atheism. They do not re reject the existence of God. Demonic unbelief exists in practice, not in theory. Demonic unbelief is not atheism, it's godlessness. Demons believe in God, but live as if he is the enemy. And so that means if you find yourself rightly recognizing Jesus' true identity, but not submitting to Jesus, that is a demonic unbelief. And so, how will you live? Will you live like the demons who recognize Jesus' true identity but don't submit? Or, will you live like Jesus' family 
who treat Jesus with incredulity. Incredulity just means skepticism. Just means lack of belief. You see, the demons, as we just saw, recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, but reject Him. Jesus' family seems to not even recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice what it says in verse 21. It says, when the family heard it, they went out to seize Him, for they were saying, He is out of His mind. Now, this is very interesting. They here see Jesus going out, casting out demons, healing people, doing these supernatural things, and they say, He is out of His mind. At this point, Jesus is maybe 30 years old or a little more. If you go back 30 years prior to this, at the birth of Jesus, God told Mary in Luke chapter 1, that she was giving birth to the Son of God who was going to be the Lord and Savior. And we're told in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, that she trusted the promises of the Lord. Fast forward 30 years. Now, Jesus is out, casting out demons, doing supernatural miracles, teaching. And now, the family thinks Jesus is out of his mind. What changed? How is this? How is it that at the birth the family, namely Mary and Joseph, believed the promises of God, but then 30 years later they're rejecting Jesus? Well, the family here is guilty of something more than just an honest mistake about theology. They are incredulous. At the time of Jesus' birth, the family faced a conflict. They received the promises of God about how Mary's giving birth to the Lord and Savior. And so they had a choice to make. Are they going to then receive that promise and take it down the path of frail rationality, which then leads them to reject it? Or will they receive the promise of God and go down the path of faith and trust in God? Well, at the birth of Jesus, they responded with faith. But now Jesus is 30 years old or a little more, and the family has the same conflict. Will they trust in their frail rationality and take that all the way down the path till he gets to skepticism? Or will they respond with faith? And we see here in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, that rather than respond with faith, they trust in their frail rationality. They conclude that Jesus is out of his mind. And you have to realize that we too have similar moments. When we are confronted with the truth of God, when we are confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ, when we are confronted with the truth of the Bible, we too must make our choice. Are we going to go down the path of frail rationality into skepticism, or are we going to go down the path of faith? We too have these similar moments. We say, how can a good God allow so much suffering in the world? And we hear that question coming down upon us, and we take it and we race off down the path of frail rationality into our skepticism. Or we hear the science propaganda repeated over and over again like a battering ram that the Bible can't explain modern science. And we have that question rain down upon us, and we take it and we race off down the path of frail rationality into our skepticism. Or we question, you know, if the Bible's divinely inspired, why would God allow so many readers to interpret it differently? I mean, if Christians aren't even sure what it means, why should I believe it at all? And we take that question, and we might even stroke our chin because it's so profound. 
and we race off down the path of skepticism. So we too face this similar conflict as Jesus' family faces here. We too are confronted with the truth of God, Jesus Christ, or the Bible. And what are we going to do? Well, too often, we, like Jesus' family, respond with incredulity. We respond with hardened skepticism. And we say in our hearts, you know, I hear what you're saying about Jesus. But, you know, just if I were to trust Jesus, if I were to trust the stories of the Bible, you know, faith in Jesus just feels so simple. It just feels so childlike. But doubt, doubt seems sophisticated. And I want to be sophisticated. And so we go down the path of our frail rationality into our skepticism. And so we too are faced with this kind of dilemma that Jesus' family is faced with. And too often we go down the path of frail rationality. We are skeptical or we are unwilling to believe. And so we trust in our frail and fallible reason over God's promises. And don't get me wrong, the point is not that we ought to believe in spite of the evidence. See, that's how the secular world describes Christian faith, and they do it wrongly. And a lot of Christians have mindlessly agreed with that false definition. And they say Christian faith is believing in spite of all of the evidence. Well, no, that's not the definition of Christian faith, and that's not what I'm urging upon you. The point is, as Pascal once said, that reason requires faith in the authority above. In other words, all reasoning begins with the presupposition of the God of the Bible, and that the Bible is His Word. And so the sin of Jesus' family is incredulity. The family thought it was impossible that Jesus was Savior and Healer. But to call something impossible is to say that God can't do it. And in many cases, that is outright blasphemy. Possibility, what is possible, is determined by what God has said in His Word. Possibility what is possible, is not determined by humans' frail reason. It's the sin of failing to lift your eyes above the human. It's the sin of failing to lift your eyes above the mundane. It's the sin of failing to lift your eyes above the natural. And so we must teach our children the supernatural stories of the Bible, and we must not apologize for them. We must not try to explain them. We must not say, but you know, there was this peer-reviewed journal once that gave some sort of natural and rational explanation for how this miracle story could have occurred. No, we must not do that. We must not apologize for the supernatural miracle stories of the Bible. We must sit down with our children and we must read them. And we must say, that really happened. And we must point out to them, as Douglas Adams has said, that the impossible often has a kind of integrity to it which the merely improbable lacks. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians should believe everything. That's not the point either. True faith knows when to believe as much as it knows when not to believe. Jesus said something about how the sheep will hear my voice. And so, will you live like Jesus' family, who, who treat Jesus with incredulity? Jesus' family put faith in their frail rationality rather than the promises of God. This was their sin. May it not be ours.
Or will you live like the 12 disciples who receive the call and even though they don't understand everything, even though they don't have it all figured out, they follow Jesus. Look with me at verses 13 through 14. And he went up on the mountain, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. We're going to pause for a moment. We have to take appreciation of the fact that this is one of the momentous moments in the history of the church. We see here that Jesus appoints twelve men to be apostles. And the appointment of these twelve apostles is the first step in establishing a new people of God, the church. The twelve become the nucleus of this new creation. Later, Jesus looks at Peter as the representative of the twelve and says, On this rock I will build my church. And Ephesians 2.20 clarifies what that means because Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so we have to take note first that it's the twelve apostles. Not eleven, not twenty, but twelve. And the significance of the number 12 rests in the fact that they are representatives of the new Israel, the church. But not new as in it replaces Israel. New as in it fulfills God's promise to Israel. You see, there's this continuity between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. There's this continuity between the covenants of old and the new covenant. And that continuity is seen all over Scripture, but especially, for example, in Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14, where the names of the twelve tribes of Israel are inscribed on the gate, and the names of the twelve apostles are inscribed on the foundation. It's one building. And so, like the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles are chosen to preach the message of the kingdom. So why does Jesus appoint the apostles? Well, look with me at verse 14. We see two reasons. It says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. So we see here in verse 14, there are two reasons Jesus appoint the apostles. The disciples have a twofold task. The first of those tasks is that they are to be with Jesus. It says they were appointed so that they might be with him. So that's the first task of this special job of being an apostle. The task is to be with him. And in fact, that's almost the definition of an apostle. They are the ones who were with Jesus. Now surely you understand how important this is. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus heal the sick? Have you seen Jesus walk on water? Have you seen Jesus cast out uh, demons? Have you seen Jesus crucified and then the dark cloud come overhead? Have you seen Jesus raised from the dead? You haven't. But the apostles have, and they were appointed to be with him. They were appointed to live with him, to learn from him, to watch him walk on water, to listen to his teaching, to watch him perform miracles, to see his death, to see his burial, and then to see his resurrection. They are appointed to be with him and watch all of this. And they are therefore qualified to pass on and authenticate the stories about him. Because we haven't seen him, but they have. And so, for example, Peter, James, and John, who comprise the inner circle, they are with Jesus at momentous points in Jesus' life. 
They're with Jesus when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter to life in Mark chapter 5. They're with him when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain into his heavenly glory. In Mark chapter 9, they're with Jesus when Jesus prays in Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14. You see, they are apostles. An apostle is a special office for those appointed, it says in verse 14, to be with Jesus. They are appointed to be the witnesses of Jesus' life on earth. Since nobody alive today witnessed Jesus' life on earth, there are no apostles today. And so their first task is to be with Jesus. The second task that's given to us in verse 14 is to be sent out by Jesus. It says in verse 14, they're appointed so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So this is their second task, that they would be sent out. And what are they sent out to do? What well, says in verse 14, they're sent out to preach. And then it says in verse 15, they're sent to cast out demons. And then Mark chapter 6 verse 13 adds that healing is also part of the commission. It's also part of the reason why they were sent out. So, so what's going on here? Notice that Jesus is distributing his authority to the apostles. The authority to preach, the authority to do miracles. He's distributing his authority to the apostles who in turn distribute God's gifts to the people. And that's how God works. That's the same pattern we see today. There might not be apostles today, but God is distributing His power through the Spirit, through His church, so that the church can then distribute those gifts to the people. And so when the disciples cast out demons or when they heal the sick, Jesus is the real author of that. They're doing that because they were given the authority of Jesus. Likewise, in the church today, when we see conversions, that's not because of your gifts or because of your slick program. It's because of, if it's a legitimate conversion, it's because of the power of the Spirit working through the church distributed to the people. And so Jesus gives the apostles this authority to show sufficiently that Jesus Christ has the power to heal. And so we see when the disciples go out healing people, for example, Acts 3.6, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. It's always important that it's made clear that it's the power of Jesus from which this healing comes. And so as we look at this passage, the question for us where we sit is, will we live like the 12 disciples who receive the call to Jesus? And even though they don't know everything, even though they have a lot of questions, even though they don't have it all figured out, they follow him. The disciples were ordinary Galileans with no special claim to their name. But Jesus, the teacher who teaches with authority, Jesus, the prophet who's more than a prophet, Jesus, the master who inspires awe and devotion, Jesus found these ordinary Galileans. He called them to himself and enrolled them as agents to declare to the world the kingdom of God. They followed the one who chose them. They would eventually see fully that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. They would eventually see fully that Jesus was the man born to be king. They would eventually see fully that Jesus was the speaker of the words of eternal life. But at this stage of things, they don't see all of that. They don't understand everything. They have a lot of questions, and yet they still follow Him. It's the peculiar pride of man that thinks that we have to have 
all of our questions answered before I can commit to the Lord. That's not what we see here. The disciples have more questions than you probably ever had. And yet, Jesus calls them and they go. Knowing Jesus today is as it was for the disciples when Jesus was on earth. The Jesus walking through the gospel story in the Bible walks with Christians now by faith. Knowing Jesus today involves going with him now as in then. But the modern person objects and says, yeah, but the disciples can physically follow Jesus. They looked into his eye. For them, following Jesus had a distinct and particular meaning with reference to Jesus' actual, physical person. And we can't do that today. And of course, that objection actually is true, which is why 1 Peter 2, 21 through 22, is such an important passage. It says, Christ suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So yes, it is true that Jesus is not physically in front of us, walking for us to follow, but his life and his teaching are fixed in history as an event and as a pattern in the past that we now look back on, and in that sense, we follow him forward. And also... His death and resurrection are fixed in history as the event that saves us and then becomes a pattern for us. So Jesus' death and resurrection saves us, and then His death and resurrection becomes a pattern for us. So first, Jesus' death and resurrection saves you. This is the center of the Christian message. This is the center of the Christian gospel, that you need saving, that we have sin in our life that has earned us the wrath of God has earned us the punishment of God, and justice would be for us to receive that punishment. But in the Christian gospel, you can be saved. You must die to sin before you can be righteous. Well, how do you die to sin? Well, the only way you can truly die to sin is through Christ's death. And so when you put trusting faith in Jesus Christ, as your Lord and as your Savior, as the substitute for your sins, then Christ's death and all that was accomplished becomes your death. And it saves you because now you're dead to sin. So your death by faith, your death in and by Jesus' death is your salvation. With nails through His hands and feet at 3 o'clock on a dark Friday afternoon, Jesus took in His body the guilt of the punishment of the sins of all those who would believe in Him. And so the question is, do you believe in Him? Do you follow Him? Well, if you do, then you are dead to sin. And when one is dead to sin, they are then alive with Christ, having received the full righteousness of Christ. And with the righteousness of Christ, you are restored to the original condition of Adam. And through the silence of Jesus' tomb, through the empty tomb, through the resurrection of Christ, you are declared righteous through faith, Romans 4.25 says. And so Jesus' death and resurrection saves you. But then, it doesn't stop there. It's not just, okay, now I'm saved. That's great. Now, Jesus' death and resurrection becomes a pattern of life for you to walk in. Because in the power of Christ's death, we die to sin and are raised victorious over it again and again and again 
Christians call this sanctification. Following Jesus is following Him to the pattern of daily putting to death the deeds of the flesh and bringing to life the deeds of the Spirit. And all of this happens through the power of the Spirit. And so, in conclusion, there is an infinite variety of situations the church has found itself living in during the past 2,000 years. And our present moment is no different. We are in a particular moment in the history of the church, which makes us no different from every generation that's come before us who also had a very particular moment that God assigned them to live in. And so the question for you as you live in this particular moment is how will you live? Will you live like the demons who recognize Jesus' true identity but don't submit? Will you live like Jesus' family who treat Jesus with incredulity? Or will you live like the 12 disciples who even though they didn't understand everything, who even though they still had a lot of questions and didn't have it all figured out, they received the call to Jesus and follow Him? Let's close by praying together. Holy Father, we know that only the presence and teaching of your Son, Jesus Christ, applied to our hearts by the Spirit, can claim your children. And so we ask that you would impress a sense of the truth of Christ on our hearts and make that sense lasting and effectual. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.